Thanks, Bert and Mary. Great job. Doesn't Bert look dapper in that tie and the, in the suit? He always looking. All right. Uh, could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah, verse 1? We'll be looking at two more indictments against the kingdom of Edom. And uh, as we look at verse 12 here in the second session, remember, we uh, observed the Lord's table at the end of the lesson. And uh, let's, uh, let's just pray not only for the offering now, but also for the lesson. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, the unmerited blessings that you poured out on us at the moment of our justification through faith in your Son. We stand in awe of your grace and your mercy and your love and your compassion toward us sinners. And we just thank you at this time that you've given us the opportunity to reciprocate and give back to you what is yours. And we just uh, pray that this love offering, you would accept it, and we accept it based upon the merits of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. And we know that all that we have, even these bodies, these souls that you've given to us, we receive from you. Everything, our entire existence, stems from you. And we couldn't even breathe right now if it wasn't for you. So we just thank you for the blessings you've given to us, and we just thank you for the opportunity again to present this love gift to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we also pray that uh, the second session would be guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. I pray the Spirit would use me mightily as his instrument and work mightily and powerfully through those are your children in the audience and guide us in the application so that as a result we'll all continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Those you saw like the eagle and make your nest among the stars. From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they leave not a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day 
of their trouble. We'll stop there. Remember verses 2 through 9 uh, present God uh, uh, prophecy against the kingdom of uh, Edom for betraying their blood relatives, the kingdom of Judah, and the, and the final invasion of Nebuchadnezzar of Judah in 586 B.C. So God says, I'm not only going to judge you, but I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. And so basically what he says in verses 2 through 9, as we saw, is that what you did to Judah, I'm going to have done to you. Divine retribution, we call it. And then verses 10 to 14, as we've been noting, present the indictments, the reason why he's going to judge the kingdom of Edom. God does this through the prophets, as I said many times, uh, he does this, whether it's Jeremiah, Obadiah, or Ezekiel. So we see here in verse 11, uh, verse 12 in my translation, indeed you should never have gloated during your relative's disastrous day, speaking against Edom of course, specifically you should have never rejoiced over Judah's citizens during the period when they suffered destruction. And then he says, furthermore, you should have never boasted during the period of distress. So Obadiah verse 12, it contains two more declarations of guilt expressed through three emphatic prohibitions. Three emphatic prohibitions, but there's two uh, declarations of guilt. And the reason why that is, is one uh, particular uh, declaration is uh, d defining the other. So they serve, these, uh, these prophecies, declarations in verse 12, they serve to intensify and advance upon the previous declarations in verses 10 through 11. And also people, they also serve as further indictments against the nation of Edom, who, which are in addition to the previous ones that are listed in verses 10 and 11. Now, if you recall, and we just read these uh, in the uh, NIV, and verses 10 through 14, we have indictments against the nation of Edom for their cruel treatment of their blood relatives, the kingdom of Judah. Now, in verse 10, as we read, uh, the God of Israel, he predicts that Edom will be covered with shame because of the sinful violence they committed against their blood relative who were the descendants of Jacob. And God emphatically asserts that Edom would be cut off from the nations forever. May I say, interject something? It was criminal treatment. It was sinful violence. Uh, uh, unfortunately, what we have is Americans, some Americans don't understand. I've actually met a soldier uh, that didn't understand this either, that he, he, had, he, had a, he killed somebody and, uh, in, in war. Uh, I want to interject something. What, what happened, you know, a lot of people say, when a guy goes to war and he fights for his country, that he's committing murder. Okay, now, in the case of, like, for instance, the, the kingdom of Edom, it was a violent thing, to, it was a sinful thing for them to do because they were kill, they were killing their blood relatives. Okay, so when a guy fights for God has ordained human governments, civil governments, and war does happen, and if you defend your country and fight for your country and kill the enemy, that's not sin. Uh, I hear an interesting story. There was a guy who was my neighbor, and, and, and related to that as we continue forward, though, but I want to interject this. He was, in, I, I lived in Atkins, Iowa, for, for the, like about the, uh, from 2006 to 2010. And I had in my, it was a four part, it was a, a, a four places, a, a four room apartment, whatever. And so one guy lived across from me, and I can't remember his name. I can remember it because if I recite my prayer list, he's on my prayer list, though. And he was a soldier in, uh, at the time of the Balkan conflict. He was in Clinton's administration. He was, he was out there in, um, over there in Europe. And he was one of those guys who had to protect the plane. And uh, the planes. And so there was a perimeter. And so if somebody went past the perimeter or you know, past the, a certain vantage point, they would tell them to stop or they'd shoot him. So this, this went on. And the guy, this person across the way, which they couldn't see with him, you know, from it was a distance, and they said, 
the person kept on coming. And they kept on saying, stop, stop. Well, they got him. And they killed him. And they go up to him. Turns out the kid was 12 years old. Totally messed this poor guy up. He was like, just, I said, so we're sitting, he's telling me the story. I said, look at he, He's thinking he murdered the guy. I said, this is not murder, okay? You're fighting for your country. The person who's the murderer is the one who sent that 12-year-old across and put him in harm's way. I, I said, really? It's not murder, okay? You're doing what you, God has ordained what you do, the soldier to defend your country and the, your country's interests. You're doing the job. Okay, he's 12 years old, but he was put in harm's way by his, his, his whoever's sending him across. They're the true murderer, not you. Man, we went on for, we went for, on for several hours because he just couldn't get out of his head what happened. I said, don't let this ruin your life, man. I said, you know, so I don't know if he, you know, we talked for a while and then he ended up moving away with his girlfriend. So, but uh, we weren't, I wouldn't say good friends, but he, you know, we talked. And, and this was one of the things we talked. So it was cool. It was interesting. I'm glad he was able to talk to me. I don't know what happened, but at least I planted a seed at least. So I brought this out because Edom, what they did was sinful because they, they're basically killing their, their, you know, their cousins and their, their, you know, their blood relatives. It's ridiculous. It was, mur it was sinful. So uh, it's not sinful of that young man that I dealt with uh, that, he, uh, that he had shot and killed that 12-year-old kid. Was, he didn't even know he was 12 years old. And second of all, he was doing what his job was told to do. And the, the murder is at the, the blood is on the hands of the, the one who sent that kid across. So then it says in verse 11, in Obadiah 11, we also saw the God of Israel through the prophet Obadiah asserts that Edom was like Judah's enemies, which history records were led by Babylon during the period of time when they stood aloof when these strangers took Judah's armies captive. Consequently, as we pointed out, these foreigners penetrated the gates of Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, so that these enemies of Judah cast lots for the city. Now, here in verse 12, we have three more emphatic prohibitions which refer to past, to the past rather than future time, which not only serve as declarations of guilt, but also to serve to intensify and advance upon the indictments against Edom listed in verses 10 and 11. So this interpretation of mine is further substantiated by the assertions in verses 10 and 11 which all served to condemn the Edomites for their cruel treatment of the descendants of Jacob in the past. So this first declaration we have is that the Edomites should never have gloated during their relatives' disastrous day. The second specifies for the reader who is being spoken about in the first. And the other words, it identifies specifically who is their relative, which is the citizens of Judah. If you look at my translation, I bring this out. Indeed, you should have never gloated during your relatives' disastrous day. Who's that? Well, the second statement tells you. Specifically, you should have never rejoiced over Judah's citizens during the period when they suffered destruction. So therefore, we see the second rebukes the Edomites that they should have never rejoiced over Judah's citizens during the period when they suffered destruction. And therefore, the first two declarations in this verse, Obadiah 12, serve as one indictment since they both speak of the same sin. Now, the third emphatic prohibition which serves as a declaration of guilt, presents an addition to the previous rebuke and asserts that they should never have boasted when the people of Judah suffered distress. So therefore, we see, if we put it all together, the advancement and the intensification and the, is that not only did the Edomites commit violence, commit violent acts against the descendants of Jacob and stood aloof while their enemies took her army captive and destroyed her capital city, but they also gloated or rejoiced over this defeat. 
perfect illustration of Muhammad Ali. He not only would uh, beat their, his opponents, but he would rejoice over them and talk all kinds of, like when he knocked down Sonny Liston, you know, he's saying, you know, but actually the true story was Ali knocked him down. That punch didn't knock him up, but it did knock him down, the old anchor punch. But he goes, he's down on the ground. Actually, when Ali, they took that picture, he was actually saying, get up, you bum, nobody's gonna believe this is exactly what he was saying. And so he took a fall because he was afraid of Ali's people who were, you know, the, 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 the uh, Islamic people who were gangsters themselves, just like the gangsters that ran, the Italian mob that ran uh, Sonny Liston's career. So uh, Ali used to just, you know, I used to laugh because I thought he did it half the time because he was, you know, the funny story about Ali, if I can do it, he got into that whole routine of his because he saw Gorgeous George. Remember the Gorgeous George, the wrestler? He saw him and he said, wow. Everybody hates him, but everybody's in the place. The place is jammed. It sells tickets. So that's, he got that idea from gorgeous George. It's true. And he, he, in fact, he came in with a king's outfit and a helmet when he went into Britain to fight uh, Henry Cooper. <laughs> so he just, he got into that big thing, you know, when you knock him down and, and you, you stand over him and talk, taunt the, the opponent and everything. I bring that up because this is what the Edomites were doing. They were just, just rubbing it in to the kingdom of Judah. It was totally, they gloated over what they were doing to the people of the kingdom of Judah. So we see that the sinful behavior of the Edomites when their blood relatives were being destroyed by her enemies is in disobedience to the teaching contained in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 through 18. So hold your place, go to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs 24, 17. So again, what we see, this, this, uh, when God condemns the kingdom of Edom for their sinful behavior towards their blood relatives, the southern kingdom of Judah, that's in disobedience to the teaching contained in Proverbs 24, 17 through 18. You know, the Edomites just say, well, they're not part of the covenant people of Israel. They should have known it anyways. It's part of establishment principles. Basically, the Ten Commandments are written into the soul of every human being. They might not have the law in written form or the Ten Commandments in written form like Israel did, but Romans 2, 14 through 15 says the Gentiles do at times practice what the law teaches. Love your neighbor as yourself, really. You know, love, and so, and, uh, so these Edomites who didn't have a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel, Jesus, right? They still understood these things. They knew that they were culpable, they had a conscience, and God wrote that into their soul, these establishment principles, we call them, which is basically 10 commandments written to the soul of every human being. So it says in verse 17, Proverbs 24, 17, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. I'll tell you a story. Um, uh, I remember... Um, there was a guy in my ministry, I go to a dame, Pastor Bob McLaughlin, he was like, they, this is a true story. It's terrible. I, I used to know, I knew his family really well, and his, uh, I used to have him over my house for dinner, and I was good friends with his, his, his youngest son, and we used to do a lot of stuff together when I was in that ministry, but I remember that guy came into his, his, our ministry, and uh, <clears throat> he was a contractor or something, so he, he, uh, he, he built a house for uh, Bob and his wife. And Bob, again, I said, Bob never had anything. He came from the projects. 
in, in Rhode Island, in Providence, and so he really never had much of anything. And I remember his mother, I used to drive his mother home and stuff. She was a great lady, I loved her. I didn't know his father. So I remember they, build, they, they get this house for Bob and his family. And they basically lived in apartments. You know, he's got, you know, his kids, we have, what, what four kids, right? And so I remember they get the house, and then this guy turned on Bob, and he threw his wife and kids out on the street. I was like, oh my gosh, it was terrible. And Bob was just like beside himself. So understandably, and I felt bad for Betsy, his wife at the time, and so this goes on. So this whole, we get through that whole thing. He gets through the whole thing. And then he was, I'm sitting in his office when he's talking, he says, you know, that guy who did, you know, I said, yeah, he goes, he goes, he's got cancer. You know, and Bob was like, you know, I said, and I'm not going to gloat over my enemy. What they, you know, I'm not going to gloat over this. He said, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I know, because like, this passage, you know, when your enemy, your, your enemy does something to you, all right, and then God turns around and deals with them. Okay, I don't know if the guy lived. I can't remember. And uh, so, you're not to rejoice over somebody who's done done evil to you, your enemy. I remember when at my my church plant, there was a person that was. Uh, first church plant where I had uh, ended up in a church, but I ended up leaving to Fermiri and I with, with another group of people. But I remember there were some people just really bad things to me, right? And so I remember one time this one particular person spoke, total took a shot at my teaching or something, and went on the website and everything. So he, I find out somebody told me I never. I moved, once I moved on, I never looked back. And I said, but somebody says, you know, this person, that person who did that to you, says. They died. They just died suddenly. I said, really? And all I could think of, do not you know, rejoice when you know, if something happens to your enemy. Do not gloat over that. Okay? God's carrying out his justice. Okay? <laughs> God could deal with us severely too if he so chooses so choose to. He's got enough evidence on us already, right, for sin, right? So be, don't be gloating over your enemy. And that's what Edom was doing. That's what they were doing with uh, the southern king of Judah. So he says in Proverbs 24, 17, do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble. Do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. And what do you think he's going to do? Turn it on you. So, very important. So, the sinful behavior of the Edomites during Judah's destruction, described in Obadiah 12, took place as we pointed out in the 6th and 7th, 7th and 6th centuries B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon destroyed Judah in the city of Jerusalem. His armies, as I said before many times, they attacked uh, this, uh, uh, Jerusalem three times. They attacked it three times. The first again was in 605 B.C. in the 7th century B.C. Then the second was in 597 B.C. The first one, Daniel and his friends went out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that from Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel and his, his friends went out in that invasion. The second one was in 597 B.C. That's the prophet Ezekiel. He got out on that one. Okay? Meanwhile, Jeremiah has to be stayed there. Okay? So he was there the whole time. And in 586 B.C., that's the final one. That's when the prophecy of Daniel 926, they said, was fulfilled, where the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple, Solomon's temple. And the people were deported throughout the Mesopotamian regions of the world uh, in Babylon. Okay. Now, during each of these invasions, 
a portion of the population of Judah was deported to Babylon, as I illustrated with, uh, with Daniel and uh, Ezekiel. Now, during the last invasion, the city of Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. In fact, if you see this slide on the board, Second uh, Chronicles 36, 1 through 21, which we just we actually read last week, records the destruction of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and its temple by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. So Obadiah, we are correlated with Book of Obadiah. Obadiah 10 to 14 is describing the actions of the people of Edom during this final invasion. That's recorded for us in great detail in Second Chronicles 36. Obadiah 10 to 14 is describing the day of the Lord in relation to the southern kingdom of Judah. And the day of the Lord is specifically the period of time in which the Lord judged the kingdom of Judah for their idolatry and rebellion took place in the 6th century B.C. So the God of Israel, a very important principle I brought out many times in the past, and I'll illustrate it for you. The God of Israel employed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as well as other Gentile nations in the Mediterranean region of the world. So the prophetic theme of the day of the Lord is found explicitly, as we read earlier, uh, in the first session, it's mentioned in Obadiah 15, where it is used of God's judgment of Edom, which had a near fulfillment through Nebuchadnezzar. So this is one of those past prophecies in Obadiah that we can use to substantiate the, the divine inspiration of Scripture. One of the big evidences for the inspiration of Scripture that the Bible was inspired by God, a, a subject we're studying on Wednesday evenings, is that it's fulfilled prophecy. This book it's got a fulfilled prophecy right there. And it's, it's great because it's only one chapter long. Great book to use to talk to people who have questions about the Bible, whether they're antagonistic or they're actually just searching and they're, they're not sure about the Bible because there's all this negative negativity in the press about the Bible everywhere you go. So and they're, they're seeing it in the colleges and the universities, everywhere, high school, everybody's negative about the Bible. It's, 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 a, it's a book of myth and, uh, I, you know, no. It doesn't read like myth. The Gospels don't. This doesn't. You can read it. And so this was a fulfilled prophecy in the 6th century B.C. Okay? It, it was predicted and it was, took place. Edom was destroyed as a nation. It, 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 was, it, it lost its national identity uh, through, um, over a course of uh, two centuries. So by you get to the time of the Roman Empire, they're no longer a national entity. So we see that the, the prophetic theme of the day of the Lord is found explicitly in Obadiah verse 10 where it is used of God's judgment of the kingdom of Edom for their, uh, their poor behavior uh, with regards to their blood relatives. So this is indicated by the statements in verses 1 through 14 which address only Edom. Now, however, <clears throat> the day of the Lord also pointed to Obadiah 15 being fulfilled in a far distant future and the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom which is indicated by verses 15 through 21, which talk about the millennial reign of Christ. So in verses 15 through 16, as we read in the first session, there's an abrupt shift, if you notice, to the, the prophet addressing all the nations, and thus Edom becomes the pattern for future uh, nations. Look at verse uh, Obadiah. Go back there if you haven't turned there already. <clears throat> Look at Obadiah. Look at verse 15. We just read the first 14 verses. Now all of a sudden it goes in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near. It's using the figure of a syndeton. There's no connective word like and or now or but before verse 15. That's to catch the attention. There's a rough shift taking place in the, in the literature. Okay, The day of the Lord is near for all nations and it's for the nations 
in the sixth century BC that were involved in the destruction of Judah along with who helped Babylon. Okay, so the day of the Lord is near for them. Okay, it was already the, the kingdom of Judah faced the day of the Lord with their destruction at the hands of Babylon. Now they're the ones that destroyed them. Now they're going to face the day of the Lord. So as you have done, it'll be done to you, and your deeds will return upon your own head. And then it says in verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, the Temple Mount, so all the, na so all the nations who are involved in that destruction of Judah will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. Also, the destruction of the nations in verse 16 is a future event as well and has not taken place in human history to this point because uh, we, so, we see that, the, that he has not destroyed all the nations of the, of the earth. It's still to come. He's basically pointing, in verse 17 through 21, is pointing to the fact that one day this world is going to face the day of the Lord, another day of the Lord, a day of the Lord where he's going to, uh, the Lord's going to pour out his seven seal trumpet and bold judgments in Revelation 6 through 18 upon a Christ-rejecting world. And that can't happen until we're gone again, the rapture. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, that the restrainer has to be removed. Somebody came in to Thessalonica saying the day of the Lord had already begun. And he said, no, it hasn't. Here's why. And as I told you before, he says, it the, the church has to be removed. The Holy Spirit who indwells the church is the restrainer of evil in the world through us, and he has to be gone, and he'll be gone at the rapture, and so then the Antichrist can manifest himself. In fact, hold your place. I'll show you. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll do this book. I taught this with Winston Bible Ministries. Uh, last year, we finished it off. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.1. 2 <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. So a day of the Lord, it, it, we see in verses uh, uh, 15, 16 of Obadiah, it's not only talking about a fulfillment of the day of the Lord in Obadiah's day, but you see this in pro the prophets of Israel, but it's also... The judgment of those nations, that like Babylon, that that defeated uh, uh, Edom, uh, excuse me, uh, Judah. What comes around goes around. So God's going to destroy Babylon and those nations that destroyed Judah. That's the day of the Lord there. That sets the pattern for what's going to take place in the future. God's going to hold all the nations to account. That's what's the message here. Okay, so it's got a future, it's got a, pre a message for the, the, the inhabitants of the earth in the 6th century B.C., but it's also pointing to the future. It's a warning to all the nations today. Look how God judged the nations in the past. That's how he's going to judge the nations now and in the future. So the day of the Lord is a day of Lord prophecies that are related to the, the tribulation period when Jesus Christ will pour out the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments, the wrath of God, Revelation uh, chapters 6 through 18 teaches us that. The second advent when Christ ends the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, that's the day of the Lord. There's also a day of the Lord which talks about the millennial reign and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But the day of the Lord, the next day of the Lord prophecy that we're waiting for is the tribulation period. But that can't take place until we're gone. That's the passage, that, one of the passages that teaches us this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a reference to the rapture, rapture, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by a word of mouth or by a letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. 
in their day and age of the first century. In other words, it hasn't. Look, he says in verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the, what's the rebellion? It's Antichrist leading a rebellion of the human race against Jesus Christ. That's the rebellion. How do I know that? Context. Because he defines it in the verse and in verse 4. Until the rebellion occurs. What's the rebellion? It's ambiguous. It begs to be defined. Well, he's going to define it for us. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's, anti, uh, that's the Antichrist. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. That's a rebellion. And that means this passage says the temple's going to be rebuilt. The Temple Mount is right now got the, the Dome of the Rock there, the Muslim Mosque there. It, one day, the temple will be rebuilt. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. God, we'll have to wait and see how God does it. Now, look, he says in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back. Notice he says what? Now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed, the Antichrist, at the proper time. Keep reading. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds him back, notice he, he, he talks about it in, in a, with a personal pronoun, a relative pronoun, which is masculine. Notice he says, the one who holds him back in verse 7, but he says, what is holding back in verse 6? What's going on? I'll tell you what. So he says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds him back, so he's a person, will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. And then, and then, consequential to this, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. See? Tribulation can't take place until we're gone. And then, first of all, who it is, what is holding him back? That's the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. Here's, I'll tell you why. And the one who holds him back is the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Only divine power, omnipotence, can stop the devil and what he's doing. Only him. That's why when we were to submit to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from us. The word of God is alive and powerful, right? Okay? So, the Holy Spirit, at the moment of our justification, our conversion, he comes to indwell our bodies. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, when we're obeying God's word, which has inspired the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's using us as the salt of the earth. The salt was a preserver in the ancient world. We're the reason why our nation hasn't been destroyed, or for the world, for that matter. The small remnant of church-age believers that are positive to the word of God, we're the salt of the earth. You're not the salt of the earth as a believer if you're, if you're in apostasy and rebellion. Okay, you're going to be disciplined by God. But if you're obeying God, keeping short accounts with God, you're the salt of the earth that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Holy Spirit, through us, is restraining evil in the world today. Don't think you're not important. You're very important. God's working through you and me, church-age believers, to preserve our nation and the world. But once we're gone at the rapture, see you later, alligator. The world's going down. And yeah, the devil is preparing his people. He's preparing his people. He, he knows it's coming. He knows his time, is, his time is short. I'm running out of time here, and I know the church is going to be out of it. He knows scripture better than some Christians. He knows it's going to be soon. And once that happens, he's got to have that, he's got to have that cover story ready.
and he already got it ready. Probably he's going to say, the aliens took us. I don't know. Could be. I don't know. They were, they were mucking up the waters anyways, those Christians anyways. You know, we can't have gay marriage and, you know, and, and all that stuff. We can't have any fun. The Christians are just keeping us from having any fun. We hate that Jesus and all that stuff. Get him out of here. Well, he's gone now. Now we got free reign. First time in history there'll be no believers on the earth. First time ever. What's going to happen? How are people going to get saved? What we leave behind. And then what's going to be interesting is they'll be reading their Bibles too. The Jews will be the first to doing it. And many will get saved. The, the 144,000 of Revelation 7 and 14, Jews will get saved from reading stuff that we have left on the internet or books we left behind or we uh, or, or they're just reading their Bibles themselves and the Holy Spirit is still in the world. Though the Holy Spirit is taken, he's not going to be localized in a group of believers once the church has moved. He's localized in a group of believers now, but he won't be localized when we're gone. Eventually, when whoever believes in, in Jesus during the tribulation period, the Spirit will come to them. Okay? So, very important. So it's interesting. You're unique because the, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are localized in us. Like that's what God wants to do at the end of the day. At the end of history, God's going to dwell with his people. That's the story of the Bible. And right now, the Bible is a story of God trying to be, live, with his, live with his creatures. His moral, rational creatures, men, human beings, men and women. So then he says in verse 8, he says, the rest of it, he says, the lawless, lawless one will be revealed once the, the, the Holy Spirit dwells the church is removed, whom, and the Antichrist will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth to speak the word and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lost one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, the unsaved. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness. You're in 2 Thessalonians, back up to the previous book and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Paul talks about this day of the Lord in the future again in 1 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Not to us. We're waiting for the rapture to come at any moment. And when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the tribulation, right? For the inhabitants of planet Earth, are non, the non-Christian in the world today, it's going to be like a thief in the night. The thief doesn't knock on the door. Can I steal your couch? No, he just comes in when you're not there. Hey, good thing to do. Play some classical music in the house or some Janis Joplin while you're out of the house with, you know, echo thing. And they'll be going, look, they got a party going on there. We can't rob this house. That's what I do. Anyways, so watch out. Here we go. The day of the Lord will come like a thief at night to the people of this earth. They're not ready for it. Verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. What? The wrath of God. Actually, the wrath of Jesus Christ, who is God, the Lamb. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're a believer. You are all children of the light and children of the day. 
You do not belong to the night or the darkness. As we pro apply Bible doctrine in our lives, we are the light of the world, lights of the world, like Jesus was in his first advent. We're the only hope this world has. We're the only one that has a solution to physical death, which is the enemy of everyone in the human race. I tell you, I was going with my brother Kenny, we got sick and had cancer and, and passed away, went home and be with the Lord. You know, Billy's a popular guy now because B Billy's the only one that really has a, a solution to this problem in the family, you know? I was like, somebody came up to me, I think um, his wife came up to me and said, you know, thank you for do all you did for our family. I was like, what the heck did I do? I don't even know what I do. And what it was is I gave them hope. I gave them the gospel so they could, okay, when you die, you don't have to fear death. You just trust in Jesus with, your, with all you, trust Jesus and he'll save you. It's not how much faith you have, it's who you have your faith in. And you're going to live with God forever and you'll be absent from the body face to face with the Lord. You avoid the wrath of God. It's as simple as that. And that was like, because one of the, the, the hard things that, you know, his, everybody had to face is he's going to be gone. What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? You know, for those who have no hope in the family, don't have Jesus, it's the end of the thing. It's all over. It's final. And I would go, it ain't final. I'm going to see him again. In fact, at his funeral, I said, I'm going to see him again. I made sure they all knew that. I'm going to see him. How do you know that, Bill? Because Jesus said so. He who believes in me shall never perish but have eternal life. So that's, they don't have hope. The world doesn't have any hope. We're the only hope for this world. What we have, the gospel, is the only hope. So then it says in verse 6, So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep. Your non-Christian friends, they're asleep. They have no clue what's about to hit them. But let us be awake and sober. Stay in fellowship with God. Keep short accounts with God. Uh, confess your sins when necessary. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as the breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Notice, he's talking about military metaphors here. He used them a lot. He used them in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. He, he, he used military metaphors quite a bit to talk about things in the spiritual life. Then he says, and verse 9, for God, now this is what he says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. And in context, he's not talking about the wrath of the lake of fire. He's talking in context to what? The day of the Lord when Antichrist is going to rule this earth. And Christ is pouring out his, his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world and, it, and the devil is cast down to the earth and his wrath is going on in the earth as well. So God's wrath being poured out and Satan now because he's cast to the earth out of heaven by Michael and the elect angels, he's going to be on the earth during the tribulation period. You, you don't want to be there. You won't be as a believer. He says, but God did not appoint us to wrath, to suffer that, but to what? to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the final stage of your salvation. The first stage was at your justification. The second stage is experiencing your deliverance from sin and Satan. That's what salvation means. When you obey God's word, practice Bible doctrine. And the final stage is perfection in a resurrection body, the perfection of your salvation. That's what he's talking about. Where, what's that going to be? The rapture is eminent. The rapture is when we get our salvation, sanctification, perfected in a resurrection body. We're appointed to that. Not the wrath of God. And then he says in verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. We should encourage one another, people, with this. And build each other up, people, just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, we see that, go back to Obadiah, verse 12, quickly. We'll be going to the Lord's Supper. So in Obadiah, verse 12... 
It says, Edom, you should not gloat over your brother, the king of Judah, in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. The net Bible's translation of this verse, I actually think is a little bit better. It says in verse 12, you should not have gloated when your relatives suffered calamity. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah when they were destroyed. You should not have boasted when they suffered adversity. Notice the, more of the, the past tense is brought out because he's looking retrospectively back at what Edom did to Judah. That's why I like that a little bit better. It's more explicit. So we see, notice in verse 12, that the mention of Judah rather than Israel, which indicates that Obadiah was written in the 6th century B.C. because the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. But it's interesting, in, uh, in Psalms, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9, the psalmist employs the God of Israel to remember Edom's cruel treatment of the people of Judah when they were destroyed by Babylon. Uh, you don't have to hold your place. Go to oh, Psalm, the book of Psalms. Go to 137, verse 7, please. Actually, start at verse 1. Psalm 137, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept, the Jewish exiles, when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Talk about, they wanted them to sing songs about Jerusalem. They were captives of Babylonians. The Babylonians said, come on, sing for us. Yeah, great. I had to sing for my nation that's been destroyed by you. For our captives have asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were famous in the Mediterranean world, Mesopotamian regions of the world. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem <coughs> my, my highest joy. Then look what he says in verse 7. Remember, Lord, isn't it interesting? It doesn't say remember the Babylonians. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day of Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you. <coughs> but notice he noticed Edom first before Babylon. So he says, daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Divine retribution, they were looking for it. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. You know what? They, that's what they used to do, foreign armies. They'd go into his place, and they would take the babies, and they'd smash their heads on the rocks. Nice people, huh? That's what was commonplace in the ancient world. In Ezekiel chapter uh, 35, it's interesting. The God of Israel, through the prophet of Ezekiel, promised to destroy the Edomites for their sinful behavior toward the citizens of Judah during the day of their disaster, just as he does through Obadiah. In this passage, uh, in Ezekiel 35, Mount Seir is a reference to the Edomites because they lived on this mountain. And then we see in Ezekiel 36, <coughs> in verses 1 through 7, excuse me, the God of Israel, through the prophet Ezekiel, asserts that he will destroy Edom for their sinful behavior towards Judah when they were destroyed by Babylon. The God of Israel used the Babylonian Empire, as we pointed out, to discipline the kingdom of Judah and the inhabitants of her capital city, Jerusalem. He also used Babylon to punish Edom as well as many other nations of the Mediterranean region of the world in the 6th century B.C., according to Jeremiah 27. 
the Babylonian Empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar, was serving God, and that they were the instrument used to judge Judah and Jerusalem. And then we see in Jeremiah 25, 9 and 27, 6, the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah describes Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. And he's unregenerate, unsaved person. He doesn't get saved till Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get, Abednego get a hold of him. So in Jeremiah 25, 9, 27, 6, the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah describes Nebuchadnezzar as his servant because this king and his empire were the Lord's instrument in judging Judah and Jerusalem. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to discipline the nation of Israel for their disobedience. Jeremiah 25, 1-11 also teaches that the Lord delivered Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's power because of their idolatry. In fact, we'll close with this, a comparison of Leviticus 25, 1-12, 26, 32-35, Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah 29, 10, and 2 Chronicles 26, 21 indicates that the Lord delivered Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's power because they failed to respect the Sabbath day and the sabbatic year in, w in which every seventh year they were to let the land rest. That's what, another reason why God destroyed the kingdom of Judah and disciplined her, and they were exiled for 70 years in Babylon. So the message is God is judging the nations. He rules evil, uses evil to destroy evil, and he's a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of love. But he's also a God of justice. He doesn't sweep his justice under the rug. He deals with people. And as I said before, the only way a human being on the face of the earth can avoid the wrath of God is through faith in Jesus. And remember, hey, as children of God, our God is still holy. We need to confess our sins. Stay in fellowship with God. Otherwise, our Heavenly Father, who is holy, is going to discipline us. But he always disciplines us out of love. So God, be encouraged of this. We saw that we're delivered from the wrath to come that's going to strike this earth. The rapture happens, we're out of here. We're not going to face the wrath of God of the tribulation period. Good. Now, in the meantime, we need to also find comfort in the fact, as Obadiah is teaching us and Jeremiah is teaching us, that God is dealing with the nations, our own nations. Let him rule the earth. Let him rule the nations, including our own. You need to pray, and I need to pray for this country and pray for our leaders who desperately need our prayers. Because we're the light of lights of the world. We're the salt of the earth, those who have positive volition to Bible doctrine. We're the reason why God has instructed this world and this nation down. But it's going to once we're departed. So in the meantime, be encouraged. God's nothing, no one's getting away with anything. No nation's gonna get away with anything. Everybody's held to account. God is a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of holiness. And we need to encourage ourselves with, as we see the injustice that is practiced by many people in parts of this country and around the world. So let's close uh, and segue into the communion service. What we're going to do is have the gentleman come up, pass out the communion elements, and then uh, we'll meditate for about a minute or two uh, before we partake of the communion elements. We'll give the guys a chance to sit down and, and relax and then uh, so that they can focus on observing the communion elements and, and bringing into remembrance uh, the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we could have the gentleman come up.
We now approach the Lord's table. One of the great things that Lord Jesus gave to us was this, this great uh, time to bring into remembrance his great sacrifice at the cross of Calvary where he experienced the wrath of God in our place. This is where we get, this, this is the kind of thing that Jesus wanted is to get us, to motivate us to live the spiritual life, to love the way he loved, but it all starts of remembering what he did for us at Calvary 2,000 years ago when we were his enemies. So we love because he first loved us. The reason why that is because we look back is the great love demonstrated to us, for us, and the rest of the human race when Christ suffered the wrath of God and was abandoned by his heavenly Father so that he wouldn't abandon us in the lake of fire forever. He suffered the crucifixion, the scourging, which were two, suffered physical death, and was reviled and slandered and abused at the cross of Calvary when we were his enemies. That's a love that's not of this world. It's the love of God, and we're the recipients of the love of God. We're the beneficiaries of the love of God. We're the ones that can express the love of God. We have the capacity because we have the spirit. When we received the love, accepted the love that Christ sacrificed, the Father sacrificed for us through his Son, when we accepted that and were declared justified by the Father, we now receive the capacity, the Spirit gives us the capacity to manifest the love of God and to manifest as a result that we're children of God. But we've got to always go back to get refilled with God's, to looking back as how God loved us when we were his enemies, staggering with this great love the creator of the heavens and the earth, the time and space continuum, the, the holy God who transcends both men and angels in their character. Nobody like God. He's incomparable. He sent his son, to be, who's just like him, same attributes, to become a human being, lower than the angels, and to live the life of perfect obedience to the law that we just couldn't do because we're sinners by nature and practice and to experience the wrath of God so that we wouldn't experience it forever in the lake of fire. So we have the communion elements. Thank you, gentlemen, for passing them out. We have the bread and the juice. The, breast, the bread talks about the person of Christ. He's impeccable. He's without sin. And so the Jews were, this, in fact, the communion services, you know, comes from, is an offshoot of the Passover service. Uh, the deliverance, we talked, they were, the Jews were, like as Jesus was observing, they were looking back at the great deliverance that God gave the Israelites in delivering them from slavery to, uh, to Pharaoh and Egypt. But now Jesus is kind of like a new Moses and superior. Matthew actually alludes to this in this gospel, and Hebrews does as well. He's a more... Uh, He's more magnificent than the first Moses. He leads the deliverance of us sinners out of the slave market of sin and slave to sin and Satan. He does it through his crucifixion. Okay? 
so in his death on the cross. So the bread speaks of his impeccable person, and the bread was unleavened, which and leaven has the, is, is, is a lot of times in scripture the, uh, de, um, depicts the presence of evil. Jesus didn't have the principle of evil in him. He didn't have the sin nature because he didn't have a human father. He's God. The Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. So the, the sin nature was not passed down from, uh, from Joseph and Mary like it is to, from our parents. So he, he it was out sin, impeccable. He had to be impeccable because that God required an impeccable sacrifice to deal with sin. That's why the animals of the Old Testament were said to, were told to be without spot and blame, without spot and blemish. The animal had to be perfect because Jesus would be perfect, and those animals depicted Him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The juice it speaks of the blood of Christ, which is a representative analogy, which is associating the the, the animal sacrifice, the blood of the animal sacrifices, with Christ's death. He suffered substitutionary spiritual and physical deaths on the cross. The spiritual one is where he was abandoned by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what we think. When we go to partake of this cup and this bread, that's what we're bringing into remembrance. It's not a time of guilt. It's a time of thanksgiving. Thanking God, the Father. I say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the grace, the unmerited blessings you give me. Things I don't deserve. I don't deserve to live, and yet I'm alive and I'm living with you, and I'm going to be with you forever, and it all because of who you and what your son is. The top celebrity in Christianity is our King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of our Lord's perfect, impeccable person, let us partake of the bread. And then Paul writes in verse 25, he says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let us partake of the cup in remembrance of our Lord, suffering the wrath of God in our place. Paul writes in verse 26, For whatever you eat this bread and drink the cup, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and that coming is speaking of the imminency of the rapture. So let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can't thank you enough for the gift of your Son and the great sacrifice, love sacrifice, sacrificial love that you demonstrated through the death of your Son. We thank you and praise you for another day of Bible doctrine. We just thank you, Father, for everyone here, and we pray that the Spirit would do a mighty work in taking these messages and the communion service to bless your people and to help them in their walk with you to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in thought, word, and action. And we just thank you again uh, for, the, uh, for this beautiful day that we're going to have, and the weather's going to be getting warm. We thank you for our families and our nation and uh, in our neighborhoods and the jobs that we have that we go to tomorrow. Just thank you for all these blessings, Father. We know we don't deserve a thing, 
And we just thank, want to thank you and express our thanks to you by living the spiritual life, becoming like your son, and be pleasing to you so that we get a full reward at the Bama seat. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, we pray, Father. Amen. I'd like to sing us a song before we uh, depart, as usual. And uh, this one's called Look to the Cross. <clears throat> Yes, we'll find the love of God at Calvary. Yes, we'll find the love of God at Calvary. Yes, we'll find the love of God at Calvary. 
find the love. 